Good afternoon to everybody and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I'm your host today, Chase Byers, and uh, with me is Joe Works. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm good, Chase. Uh, good to have you back with us. Uh, missed you uh, last week. Yeah, and this week we are missing Jeff, and um, we are on his personal Facebook page. And so we are just going to wreak havoc uh, this entire podcast. And today's episode is actually on procrastination, isn't it, Joe? That's what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> or forgetfulness. Or forgetfulness. No, that, that's not what we're going to talk about today. Um, we got Drew in the background working uh, behind the scenes for us. We appreciate him doing that. But um, as it's titled here on Facebook, if you're joining us via Zoom, we're going to be talking about when God shuts the door is what we're going to be talking about this afternoon for a little bit of time. Uh, I don't know about you, Joe, but sometimes when I'm doing different Bible studies, sometimes it's Old Testament, sometimes it's New Testament, and I'll just get these different books of the Bible that I'm studying with all different types of people at different Bible levels, and a topic will just hit me from all of those different studies sometimes. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll see a consistent pattern throughout the entire Bible because these studies are in so many different places. And that's kind of the framework for today's episode, this idea of when God shuts the door. And Joe, what comes to your mind when you just hear that phrase, someone shutting the door? What is that? What, what comes to your head there? Uh, you know, uh, contact is cut off or finality, um, you know, that sense, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, that opportunity, the door shut on that opportunity is yeah. sometimes how we hear that phrase used a lot. And that is really a biblical idea. Um, you see it in different stories, and you also see it in different phrases that Jesus will use whenever he taught in parables. But one of the earliest places that we see this idea of God shutting the door on something actually takes, back, uh, takes place all the way back in Genesis chapter 7. Um, and a lot of you listening are good Bible students, so whenever you hear Genesis 7, what do we immediately think of? Uh, the the flood, the story of the flood. Yeah, that's right. Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 all cover the, the flood and the story there that takes place. Um, of course, God commands one of his servants of the, of the day named Noah to build this ark because God is going to flood the earth because he sees just how corrupt that the earth had gotten. Um, and so he's going to flood the earth. But by God's grace, he chooses to to spare Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, so eight people in all, and Noah is instructed to go out and build this ark. God gives him the specific instructions on how big and wide and tall the ark is supposed to be. God also tells him he's supposed to take all of these animals and put them on the ark as well. And with such a big ark, you might be wondering, well, for starters, how did Noah build all this? And, and secondly, with such a big door that's on the ark, uh, let's see here. Um, in verse 16, it says, you shall make a window for the ark, finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall, you shall make it with lower second and third deck. So you can just imagine that just the sheer size that this thing would be. But in Genesis chapter seven, let me set it up. We'll look back at verse 13. It says on the very same day, Noah and Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, and the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They, and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark, uh, excuse me, so they went into the ark to Noah, 
by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. So God, after everyone has gotten on the ark, God closes up the ark. He closes the door of the ark behind them. And Joe, what happens after that? Well, then, then you've got the rain coming and uh, the destruction of the world, uh, only saving uh, those Noah, Mrs. Noah, the three sons and their wives. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's no time after that. It's just right after God closes the door, the destruction of water comes upon the earth and only those that Joe just mentioned were saved. Um, and Peter uses this as an analogy, doesn't he, Joe? really does and and makes the, the the very point that you were talking about at the at the beginning the, the this concept of shutting the door um peter lets us know what that did mean for for certain yeah um where is that over in first peter Se three uh second peter two maybe is what i was looking at yeah, second peter yeah, yeah. Two. he mentions it a couple times yeah go ahead yeah uh so i'll pick up for context in verse four uh second peter two four for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so in particular, that last section there, verse five, uh, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, uh, when those doors were shut, or when that door was shut, um, then opportunity for the world uh, passed. Yeah, and I also love how it notes there for us that he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. I think is the implication there that Noah had been doing some preaching. He'd been telling people about what was going to take place and occur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this, was, this was not at all a desire for God to extinguish mankind with the exception of his family without an opportunity for them to, to be saved. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but the world had made the decision that they were not going to serve him. Their thoughts were only evil continually. Um, and so they, even then, they had the opportunity to, to be saved, uh, but rejected it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So as we kind of think through these other times that God maybe shuts the door on people's opportunity to be saved, at least in my mind, it continues in Genesis over in chapter 19. Just real, uh, really quick, Jace, before we yeah, get yeah, to that, uh, I, I, I should have mentioned this as well. Uh, there in that passage in 2 Peter 2, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's significant to note the language at the beginning of verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world. Um, you know, if, if we accept the, the text, uh, Noah, one of eight people, same thing you mentioned earlier, 1 Peter 3 talks about the eight souls that were saved. Uh, sometimes people will talk about, uh, well, God's not really going to do what he says that he's going to do, you know. Sometimes people will say, well, if what you teach is true about baptism, then there's going to be a lot of people that's going to be lost, and they have trouble accepting that that the majority won't be saved. You know, they, they just can't accept God's word as it's stated because it, it just seems like, well, that's just going to be too many people that, that are going to be lost. That, that's one of the major objections that, that I've heard over the years is, well, that just means that look, look at how many people are wrong. Look how many people are lost. 
God didn't spare the ancient world. That's not God's fault. They're the ones that are rejecting his word. So just that, that finality of the door being closed, God will close the door even on the whole world. Yeah, absolutely. And it certainly was this worldwide flood that occurred there um, in chapter 7. But it's also important to see that that happens locally as well throughout the rest of the Genesis narrative as well. Yep. Um, and that's really a cool thing to see throughout Genesis, by the way, is the judgment that God will bring on people, um, really starting in chapters 7 through 10 with the ark. But also you see it again in chapter 11 with the um, Tower of Babel as well, these people becoming arrogant and God creating a scattering that happens as well. But bringing it to a more local level occurs in chapter 17, uh, or sorry, in chapter 19. We could spend a whole podcast. I even thought about doing a whole podcast on the story of Lot and the bad decisions he made as he sees the land over there by uh, Sodom, as far as it's, it's good land, just like the land of Egypt, it says, uh, just like the garden of the Lord, he, he, it tells us that Lot saw in the land of Sodom. And as Sodom, or as, excuse me, as Lot gets closer and closer to Sodom, by the time we get to chapter 19, it says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And so at the very beginning of Lot, he's dwelling with Abraham in the land of Canaan. Now he's all the way in Sodom, and he's at the gate. Joe, whenever we see that phrase, by the way, that someone is sitting at the gate of a city, what does that normally mean? Uh, they have some reputation. Uh, we see that in the story of Ruth. Um, uh, you know, the people that sit at the gate are often considered to be the elders, those who are going to make decisions or, or witnesses, but they, they have reputation in the, in the town. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we see that out of Lot whenever the story um, kind of takes place. Because as these two angels or these two men uh, come and meet Lot, it says in verse 2 of chapter 19, he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside and your servants ho a house and spend the night. Wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. And Lot's got a problem with that, doesn't he, Joe? Why, why doesn't he like that? Um, well, he wants to show hospitality and yeah. he realizes that it's dangerous if they stay in the square. Yeah. Lot knows what's up in that town. He knows what kind of people live there. And so he tells them in verse three, uh, he urged them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house. He prepares a feast, bakes unleavened bread and they eat. But in verse four, before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old and all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who have come to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. So this is the first time we've seen, at least in Genesis, explicitly homosexuality, where we see men wanting to have relations with men. And it's portrayed here, obviously, as a very wicked and evil thing. But I don't think this was bring these men out so that they might willingly be with us. I think this was very obviously a horrible thing that they were wanting to do to the men who had just come into the city. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just perversion in every sense of the homosexuality. Raping would be uh, essentially what they're going to do uh, to, to these men, just a, a horrible uh, condition in which Lot has found his family living in the middle of. Yes. Um, and so Lot, he's pleading with them. He's trying to tell them, you know, no, don't do this. 
In fact, he says something just in the land of Canaan. I'm sure he, he would have never thought to say what he's about to say. But in verse 7, um, or, well, we'll read verse uh, 6. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. I mean, he offers up his own daughters here. Again, yeah. something he would have never thought of doing whenever yeah. he was dwelling in the land of Canaan. And yet that's where he's at at this point. Um, and so as the story goes, in verse 9, uh, they say, stand aside. And in fact, they mention this one is coming as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. And they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. And so now this frustration and this sexual passion that they were going to have against these two men, they've now turned against Lot. And we already talked about him maybe kind of being a leader of the city. And I think you see that some of in what they say, you know, you've made yourself out to be a judge here in verse nine. And verse 10 is where the whole door thing comes back into play. The men meaning the two men that were inside Lot's house, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. That's where we see that idea again of the door shutting on opportunity. Lot has went out to try and reason with these men and tried to tell them about what's going to happen and try to reason with them to leave these men alone. But of course, it was to no avail. And one of the biggest lessons I see just personally out of the story of Lot anyways is God's grace, but also God's patience, uh, God's patience here. Because at every turn, God could have just said, Lot, you're on your own. You clearly want to stay here. Um, but God is patient with Lot. He takes he sends his two angels. They pull Lot back in and they shut the door. But am I crazy, Joe? Do you also maybe see that, that parallel there with the ark here in the story of Lot when that door shuts? Yeah, uh, you you know, not only does the door close, but in verse 11, the men are struck with blindness. Um, and so there's a, there's a curse that's brought upon them. Um, sort of a, I don't know, it, it seems sick to me that, that they're still trying to find the door. Um, uh, you know, I think if, if I've been struck blind because of some action that I'd taken, you would hope that your heart is soft enough to, to realize wait, I've, I need to get away from this. I need to repent or whatever, but it uh, seems kind of strange that they're blinded and yet they're still trying to get in. Yeah, it just shows the, the grossness and, and the wickedness of their sin, uh, really, is what I see there. Yep. So here, um, here in chapter 19, it's shortly after Lot is pulled back into the house and he tries to go out and even convince his sons-in-laws about the destruction to come. Um, and they, of course, think that he's joking or jesting with them, that the very next day when morning dawned, the angels urge Lot and tell him to take his wife and his two daughters and get out of the city. It's going to be swept away in punishment. But in verse 16, he hesitates, but eventually Lot gets out of the, out of the land of Sodom. And in verse 24 of chapter 19, it says, And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Yep. And so God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. And there was a door of opportunity, but it was now closed and judgment came in. 
Excellent. Jude speaks about this event and uh, in Jude, the seventh verse, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh, this, listen to this, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Uh, when we read this text, it needs to be a, a lesson for us. Uh, it's recorded to, to give us an example. I'd forgotten how explicitly it says that it's exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yeah, that's helpful. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Well, um, those are two Old Testament examples I have. If we wanted to look at examples that don't explicitly use this door analogy, we could probably think of a dozen other times whenever God was going to come in judgment against his people or about uh, against other people and their window of opportunity closes. Um, Joe, do you have any other Old Testament things that are jumping out to you there? Uh, so maybe just to expand it just a little bit, don't won't spend much time on this, uh, but you know, uh, the salvation of the Israelites uh, leaving Egypt, the door wasn't open, but the sea was. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, for the Egyptians though, it closed on them. And again, similar ending to the... Uh, to, to those in, in Sodom and Gomorrah and in, in Noah's day as well. And, it, and I, love, I love you bring that up. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, um, well, lost it, hang on. Yeah, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. I, I have always thought that was interesting that in Hebrews, he mentions what happens to the Egyptians when they tried to come through. Yeah. They weren't walking by faith in Yahweh. These people were, and those who walk by faith get to go through the door. Those who don't walk by faith, such as the Egyptians, the door shut on them and they were drowned. So yeah, that's a really, that's a helpful another one. Good, good. Maybe comparison. even tying that together, uh, help me with this one, Chase. Uh, even shortly before that, you had God's instructions for the Passover lamb and uh, the blood was to be around the door and those inside those houses uh you know the 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 uh the, the lord would pass over protect those within those houses and uh so maybe even a sense of, of those doors having been shut and those that didn't have the blood of the lamb uh were not going to have the protection Yes, yeah, and that is right before we read that passage in Hebrews, Hebrews eleven twenty eight. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Cool stuff. Well, I'm watching the Facebook feed right now, and if anyone is participating on Zoom, feel free to throw any others in there that you think about. Uh, CJ's already a little bit ahead of us. He's got John ten on there, which is another good one. We'll look at that one in just a second. Joe, you got anything else on that? No, no, go, go ahead. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn our Bibles over to Luke chapter 13. We'll, we'll get to John 10 in just a second. So Luke 13, I was doing a class on Luke, and Genesis uh, 7 and 19 were the first three that I put together with this. Jeff and Joe kind of helped me get the others. Um, but Luke 13, we're going to look at verses 22 through 30. Um, I love Luke does a good job at setting up our parables for us. Uh, Joe, you want to read 22 through 30 there for us? Yep. 
And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, you, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you, where, where you are from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down at the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are uh, the and, and indeed there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Okay, so here Jesus is set up really well in verse twenty-three. Someone asks him, "Lord, are there just a few who are being saved?" We didn't look at this today. I know we looked at it at several podcasts ago, but what does that remind you of? You, you might have to read my mind with that, but it just hit me. That uh, question. I'm not sure. I'm, For I'm me, Joe, it, it, it reminds me of Abraham in the chapter before uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Yeah. And he, God reveals it to him that he's going to go do this. And he starts asking God, will you spare the city if there's even 50 righteous? Uh, and he whittles yeah. God all the way down to 10. Um, so anyways, that, that just kind of hit me. That's kind of cool how those connect yeah. there. But are, are there just a few who are going to be saved is the question to Jesus. And it's a good question. And Jesus' answer, I love Jesus doesn't just give yes or no answers, does he, Joe? Almost never. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he wants us to think through things. Yeah, and so help help me think through it, Joe. What? How does Jesus answer this question? So don't be so worried about how many or how few. He does deal with that. The first thing that he says is, worry about yourself. You strive to enter into the narrow gate uh, in verse twenty four. Um, you know, I, I think that's pretty significant. Is we can debate many, few, what number, and so forth. But the important thing is that we do what we're supposed to do. Um, and then he does go on and answer it beyond that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And my, my translation, by the, say, by the way, does say strive to enter through the narrow door. It does use the word door there. Yeah. But yeah. I hadn't thought about it in like that. You know, you first worry about yourself. You strive to enter the narrow door. And he deals with it in the last half of the verse. I, I do tell you, there will be many who seek to enter and will not be able. There will be many who try to come through and aren't going to be able to get through it. And then that's when he kind of starts into the, the parable side of his answer in verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock and on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. He's going to answer you. I do not know where you are from. And so using that analogy, Jesus is saying there, there's going to come a time when this door is going to shut. There's not always going to be an opportunity for you to come and join me in the kingdom of God. I think is the idea. Um, and so in verse 26, he, he goes on to explain that in that moment, there are going to be some who claim to have known Jesus or say, you know, we ate and drank in your presence. We taught in our, uh, you taught in our streets, but Jesus is going to say, I don't know you depart from me. You evildoers is, is what my translation says there. 
Um, there's going to be these people who claim to have known Jesus, but they happen to know him, known him at all. But the parable is telling us that the door is going to shut at some point. And, and, and how self-deceptive that could be. We ate with you. We drank with you. You taught us. But, you know, you would think, well, that's, that looks a lot like fellowship. Uh, you know, that looks, that looks like discipleship, but it's not. Um, uh, you know, we've got people like Judas who ate and drank with Jesus and Jesus taught him. Um, uh, but uh, that's not all there is to it. It's not just about having some familiarity with, uh, with the Lord. Uh, these people even, you know, by the, in, the, in the parable, these people had spent time with Jesus, but the Lord doesn't know them. It, it takes true discipleship, living it out, being being a real follower of Jesus. And so uh, I also love the implication that he throws in there. I think this is definitely a Jewish audience he would have been talking to because he tells them in verse 28, in that place where, where they're going to end up going because the door is closed, there's weeping, gnashing of teeth. But it's when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves have been thrown out. One of the ultimate tortures for the Jews and for the Pharisees that won't enter through the door that is Jesus, we'll talk more about that in just a second, is going to be seeing all these other men of faith, and that was the key, men of faith, who have entered into the kingdom of God, because they did walk by faith and not by sight. And then on the other side of that, the east, west, north, and south, I, I think, you know, alluding to the, the Gentile world, the, the, the whole world is being invited in, uh, and so right in the middle of that, they are, they're thrust out. You have the, the patriarchs are in, east, west, north, and south are in, but they're not. And, you know, Joe, one of the biggest things I see out of this, too, it, it, this is not, we, we did an episode on Calvinism several weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago now. This is not Jesus picking and choosing who gets to come through the door, is it? it it's really not. And, and you can see it, that in the text. Yeah, it, Jesus is saying the door is wide open. Now, he is saying that door is going to shut at some point. And we'll talk more about that here in a minute. But for now, the door is wide open. Anybody can come through. It, it's not a matter of me picking and choosing and the master choosing who he's going to bring in. The door is wide open. It's your choice to enter. And, and, and you see it within that context, the, the very next verse 31 uh, depending on your translation, the same day or, or, or the same hour, uh, depending on your translation there, they say they're trying to kill you. Jesus says, I got to go to Jerusalem. That's where the prophets die, uh, mm -hmm. verse 33. And then he begins to lament over Jerusalem, 34 through 35. Uh, this is not the Lord's will that these people be thrust out. Uh, God wants them to be saved, but they're making the decision to reject Jesus. Yes. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent point. I hadn't thought about going a little bit further to make that point. Excellent. Yeah. Joe's writing my sermon as, as Sunday gets closer. <laughs> um, yeah, well, great point. Well, you got any, any other thoughts there on, on Luke 13? No, no, I'm glad you brought it up. It's, a, it's such a powerful one. In fact, as, as we were reading it, it's easy to think about particularly that Genesis uh, account with the flood. And just seeing that sense of, man, once that's closed, um, uh, you know, oh, you, you, need to, you need to strive, be diligent, put forth effort 
to to be in um, because it's it's going to be shut. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so um, here we are, and uh, we'll, we'll look over at John Ten. I realize we have about fifteen minutes left, so we have plenty of time to make our our points and applications. Uh, CJ already mentioned John Ten in the comments, and he's exactly right. John chapter ten is the parable of the good shepherd. I think Joe, this this section is probably most famously known for Jesus saying, "I am the good shepherd," but there's another "I am" statement uh, right before that in verses yeah. one through ten. So I'll go ahead and read that for us. And Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep." To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So I'll actually, I'll stop there for now. Uh, whenever you hear this at first, for me, sometimes it's a little bit confusing. Uh, at first, I want to read it very literally. I didn't grow up on a sheep farm. And so I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, he's just talking about farming. But I'm not the only one that feels that way whenever we come to the text. Because in verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. There's a greater meaning, isn't there? Yeah, and the, the Lord always wants us to be trying to uh, making spiritual applications to the, the physical events. Yes. And so he started off his parable in verse one by talking about the door, those who are entering by the door into the fold of the sheep. Well, in verse seven, Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill, uh, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If you want to enter into the protection that God has to offer, you have to come through Jesus. He is the door that you come through. There is no other way to get in. And he will be able to go in and, and out and find this great pasture but it's only if you enter through Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the door. If you've ever been in a situation where you felt like you were in danger and you, you ran to or you sought out a place of refuge and you know the relief that comes over your mind when you think about, you know, okay, now I'm safe. Whether it's you know, a robber or you know, some uh, storm or whatever the case, um, once you've realized that, okay, now I found this, uh, this place of, of security, uh, you know, that's the, yeah, yeah. That's the image that I'm getting here. Yeah. I, you know, that's, that's cool because I, I think about just last night, uh, Rebecca and I, we were traveling back from Kentucky and at one point we had to stop at a, at a place to get gas and I got out of the car and it was freezing. I mean, it was really, really cold. And I pump gas real quick, put, put the, uh, the gas pump back and get in the car and shut the door. And just that warmth hits you. 
and just that moment of security and I'm out of the elements now, I'm, I'm not cold anymore. I don't know, that's a really small way to put it, but just to illustrate what Joe was saying, that's what Jesus is offering here. That's what he's saying. If you come through me, you will be saved. You will find that refuge or that comfort that you've always been looking for. Um, and it's only through me. So yeah, great point, Joe. Well, one other place that Jesus will make this statement that he is the door is actually outside of the Gospels. And this is a section that Joe and Jeff touched on last week. Um, it's in Revelation chapter 3 at the church of, to Philadelphia. Um, Joe, you want to take us through Revelation 3, 7, and 8? Sure, sure. I'm turning there as we, uh, as we speak. So we've got the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And really, we uh, not necessarily for this reason, or, or not for this reason, but we did have to skip over uh, a lot of the church in Philadelphia last week. Um, and so there are two churches in uh, out of the seven that receive no condemnation, the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. Nothing negative, nothing bad is said about them. Uh, they are faithful, and the Lord is wanting to encourage them uh, to, to continue uh, their walk with the Lord. Neither church is in a comfortable setting. Uh, if you remember, the church in Smyrna uh, was facing uh, tribulation, and uh, some of them were going to be thrown into prison. Uh, he even intimates that some of them are going to face death, uh, be faithful unto death. And I'll give you a crown of life. Similarly, the church in Philadelphia, um, they where they are, the Lord describes that, that area as the synagogue of Satan. That's not talking about the church. It's talking about Philadelphia, talking about the, the, the area. Uh, there were some in, the, in that area claimed that they were Jews, but they're not God's people. And so, you know, uh, the, you think about the Jews or synagogues, you think about the Jews, but if they've rejected Jesus, then what kind of a synagogue is that? It's a synagogue of, of Satan. So there's a lot of danger for them in, those, in that situation. They might be looking for that security. And so Jesus opens up this uh, letter in verse 7. The angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who, shuts, uh, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Uh, and so whatever this key of David is, uh, it's something that's intended to give them assurance that God's in control. He opens, nobody shuts. He shuts, no one opens. There's not going to be um, any uh, overpowering of, of Jesus. I have a statement made back in Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. I'll just read it a little bit quickly here. Um, beginning of verse 20 of Isaiah 22. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hokiah. I will clothe him with your robe, strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one will open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a, and, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Um, just a, a really powerful, comforting passage to think about. The Lord is going to lay upon this individual 
the key of the house of David, verse 22, and he's going to have this power to open and shut, and he's going to become a glorious throne to his father's house. Certainly seems to have a lot of applications to the Lord, and the Lord uses that that language of the, the key of David here to refer to himself, Jesus does, in Revelation 3 and verse 7. And, and so the idea is that he has the power. Uh, he, he is He's the king. Uh, so we're, we're thinking about this, this palace, you know, the house of David, that would be the kingdom, uh, the, the kingdom of Jerusalem. The, uh, look over at verse 12, he even mentions that. He overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God. I'll write on him a new name. So I think you have this house of David, the new Jerusalem, uh, the holy city. And uh, God is saying, Jesus is saying to these saints in Philadelphia that I'm going to protect you. In fact, I'm going to make you a pillar in, uh, in this house, uh, in this place, in this temple. Um, the beautiful thing about that is that he sort of weds these two ideas together. Uh, and we find this in a lot of other passages. Uh, you have the, the house of David, the palace, the, the, the king's palace, and you also have the temple uh, mentioned in verse 12, because Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those. He is both king and he's priest. And so we have the, the wedding of those two thoughts. He already has said a couple, of, or he's already said once, and we'll say again in Revelation, that we are a kingdom of priests. And so he is, we're a kingdom of priests. He is the king of kings, and he is the high priest overall. And so when the Lord shuts a door, for those who are in his care, there's great comfort for that. He'll make them a pillar. The earlier passages we've looked at are, are pretty scary, aren't they? You know, those who were outside, the door was shut at the flood. Uh, those who were outside, the doors was shut and they were blinded and cursed in the story of, of Lot. Uh, when the door shuts in Genesis 13, there's no hope. When the waters shut in uh, the story of, of the closing of the Red Sea, the Egyptians were all perished. But here it's the opposite imagery. It's when the door is shut that these people find security there. They need to trust in the Lord. He's going to give them this name. He's going to have a relationship with them. Quite the opposite of what we read about in Luke. Remember, he said, I don't know you. Here he says, I'm giving you a name. I do know you. In fact, I'm, I'm identifying you. Uh, just such a, such a powerful text. So, yeah, that is super cool. So in verse eight, when he, when he goes on to say, I know your deeds, behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Do you think that idea is, is heaven? You all have this open door to go into a place that no one else is in control. Am I looking at that right? I think that that's included there. I sort of skipped over that part. I'm glad you called attention to it. I think that's included there. I think it may be just more general of opportunity as well, because he goes on in the next part and says, for you have a little strength and have kept my name and have not denied my name. So it, there is a sense of the promise. I think you're right that, that it does include that. But it's also based upon the fact that they've been taking advantage. You know, we talk about, oh, well, there's an open door. There's an opportunity given. They've taken advantage of those open doors. 
And so the Lord is welcoming them in then. Yeah, I, okay, I think cool. you're right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah th but that's, that's still really cool. That the, the Lord, he's offering an open door to his people that no one can shut. Yeah. Um, th th and there are a lot of things, different people through persecution, and especially in the context of Revelation, that's what these people are facing is persecution, where it looks like doors are going to be shut. But Jesus is saying, I've got a door open for you that no one can shut, um, whether it be eternal life or just living in the heavenlies now and being a child of God. Um, but still, that, that's such a cool idea. So, yeah, thank you for bringing me some clarity on that. That's neat. Um, and, and unfortunately, you have a, a contrast with the church in Laodicea um, uh, down in verse 20 of, the, of Revelation 3. Jesus says, wow. I stand at the door and knock. You know, here you've got a church that has a door. They've shut the door. The Lord is on the outside. He wants to come in. Yeah. He's, he's offering them. I want to have fellowship with you. I'm standing here. That, to me, this is, I, I've, I've preached this several times. To me, this is one of the saddest verses to imagine. There's yeah. an opportunity for, for great hope and joy there, but it's sad where it is. You've got Jesus standing on the outside of his church, in Laodicea, knocking. You know, I can imagine here the the business meeting going on, and and they've got everything squared away, and they're taking care of all the details. But we've not discussed the Lord. You know, we 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 we've not included the Lord in our plans, um, uh, or or whatever activity the church is involved in. You know, I think you can have that that, that situation present. Yes. Yeah, that's really cool, Joe. Well, um, we, we're just about out of time. I mean, there, there are endless applications of what Joe and I are talking about here. Um, I, I think one of the bigger ones I just want to talk about is, y'all, there's a time where the door is going to close, where God is going to close the door, whether it be when the Lord Jesus comes back or what I think is more, what, what we see more is when our life comes to an end. And I just got a notification on my phone. Let me just say, I don't know if this is true or not, but I got a notification on my phone that said we have just had, uh, yesterday was the deadliest day for the coronavirus since April. Um, and so a lot of people are dying right now. A lot, lot, of, lot of things happening and people are always dying. And so we need to think about that. We need to think about that our life is going to come to a close. The door is going to shut on our life. And for some, that might be a good thing. But for some, that might be a scary thing if they haven't made their life right. And each day that we live, is another opportunity to make things right before God, uh, to, to be more in, in line with what he wants. And so if you're not a Christian and you're listening, stop tearing. The door can shut. Be ready to meet God. And if you're a Christian, one of the greatest admonitions I can give you is, yes, wait for that day. But each day is another opportunity for you to show people the way to Christ. Another day for you to show them the door that is Christ. And so Amen. we need to strive our best uh, to make sure we're doing that. Any other things or, or thoughts or comments, Joe? No, great, great way to, to end the broadcast today. Uh, thanks for bringing these uh, passages together, Chase. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we'll close there and we'll see everyone, Lord willing, next Wednesday. Take care.